Greetings, this is Radical Raw with Radical Solutions. And in case you don't know, in the UK, this is what they call Black History Month. I'm going to feature the historian, not historian, psychologist, the man they call Amos Wilson, who looks at the future of the black man on planet Earth. You know, although it's you know, what they call History Month, we're looking into the future. Uh, according to what has happened in the past, all right? So check it out. You're, I hope you find it interesting. This brother is very deep. He's, he wrote many uh, sub, um, books on the subject of um, psychology, you know, and um, the, the, the situation that, that we're in and the reasons why we're in this situation and, and how our, our mindset is affected and can be used to get out of this situation okay enjoy radical raw with radical solutions to get the resources from the other planets and of course when you have big space cities and colonies and so forth you will mine those planets and those planets will be used to fuel these massive artificial satellites where is the black man going to be during those times they will not be mining africa which will be sucked up what is going to happen to the black man once the the metals and materials are sucked out of the African continent. What is going to happen to us when the, met the metals and materials are sucked from under the oceans? What is going to happen to this to us when the earth is so polluted and so filled with radiation and other things that it is basically uninhabitable and we see it headed that way. We talk about dioxins and PCBs and this and that and right now we see where it is going, a pollution of the earth and a destruction of earth. Sometimes I'm tempted to think that those mutants that we saw in that cafe represent some of those mutants that had to stay back on earth and, and mutated as a result of the fact of the radiation of World War III. Monsters having been created because of the rearrangement of their genetic systems. That's such. This man, this Caucasian man now, is already basically in the position to leave us here. As I also sort of joke, I can see us now as blacks walking around, picketing for, for uh, fair planets. You know, we want to move. Yes, we want to we live on the moon. With, yes, I can live on the moon. You know, we'd be picketing throughout the next forever, picketing as they move from one planet to the next, when we'd be moving in behind them. Picketing. <laughs> Or else, you know, some of us now, there's one black guy who's going to take a, a trip in July, isn't it? Right? Bluefoot, uh, I think. Bluefoot, right. And that's going to make us, of course, feel real good. You know, the same old game, though. You know, this sidekickism that blacks always play. You look on TV, always black men as a sidekick, a carry along. And we say, look, you might go out there with them. We, yeah, they'll take us along out there, you know, mascots and all. But also, uh, quite often what will happen, even if we went out there, it would still, we will not have gone out there without carrying our second class status with us. It's still going to be the second in command or the second fiddle or something along with dragging along. This is the reason why it's not important enough. It's, it's not just good enough for us to go along with them on the trip. We must be capable of making the trip ourselves and have an independent force. You see, or else the old game continues. So black second classism continues right across the satellites and right on across the universe. You see? And so when we talk about then the education of black children, 
We are not talking about just preparing children for jobs or just for qualifying them. We are not talking about just equality and so forth. We are talking about the survival of our people and the ability of our people to protect their interests. We have been sold a bogus progress and a bogus equality, particularly about many of our leaders. In fact, the whole selling of equality is a bogus game. You see? You know, I want to have the same as they got. I want to be equal with them. That's very thoughtless, ladies and gentlemen. It's about being superior. I know that's right to me, but it's, it's, about being, it's about being superior. It's a, a whole different ball game, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a moment or two. The thing that we must recognize then is that we must urge the education of our children is urgent. And I mean urgent. It, it, we are in a state of emergency at this point. And consequently, then, it means that we have to take control of the education of our children and prepare them for what we see coming up in that future. And of course, for what we see that is happening right now that leads into the future itself. The other thing that we must look at, of course, is what I call sometimes constancies. One, a major leap in the intellectual development of a child is that child's ability to see that many things stay the same despite the fact that they appear to change. You see, in early, in, in the, you go into D.I.J., who talks a great deal about the intellectual development of the child, and he talks about the stage of the child, when you can easily deceive it, you can take two equal glasses of water, and you ask the child, like, are there equal amounts? And it will say yes. And you take one glass and pour it into a tall cylinder, and it will say, oh, the cylinder either contains more or the other glass contains more, even though it looks right at the fact that you've just taken one glass and poured it in there. But it is deceived by what it sees because it can only concentrate on one aspect of reality. And therefore, it's taken along by obvious and apparent changes. You see, we find, of course, that many of us as adults, we still have not gotten out of this kind of thing. There are many of us who believe that we as a people have progressed, that we are really further, uh, we are further along than we were in slavery, you see. And, of course, we can talk about the few things that we do, you know. We talk about, oh, you know, well, they're not lynching us anymore, and they're not, you know, they don't have us in chattel slavery anymore, you know, that's nice. And, of course, now we have uh, increased opportunity. And we like to talk about the specialties that we're in. You know, we go to various colleges now, and we are computer technologists, and we are, you know, this, and we are that. And yet you recognize that in slavery, black people were especially thin. Yeah, everybody had been picked cotton. Not at all. You had blacksmiths, carpenters, supervisors, you know, the domestic people, craftsmen. In fact, in certain aspects of the country, you had more skilled black people during Reconstruction than you had whites. So the idea of blacks having skills and specialties is not new at all. It's the same old game. And for the same reason. 
And that reason is to maximize the profits of the master. And when we talk about getting jobs and so forth and all of our specialties, recognize it's the same ball game to maximize the profit of IBM and all the rest of these big things that we're going to work for. You know, when I think about IBM and all these big companies, it reminds me of perhaps many blacks in slavery who got off because they worked for the big plantation. And they'd come down on the other slaves there who worked for the little plantations. You know, so if you worked for Mr. Charlie who had a hundred slaves, you felt better than a man who had two or three. <laughs> Being slaves, of course, just the same. <laughs> and there's some of us, though, you know, we work for RPM, I work for so-and-so, you know, somehow that makes me better if you're working, you know, down the street there with maybe one or two employees. But the old game is the same. Thank you very much. The old game is maximizing profits. The other part of the old game is, though, and the constants, and this is what we have to look at. You have to get beyond the obvious changes and look behind those changes. And say, so, well, what really has changed? And you recognize the most basic things have not changed. As a matter of fact, the, change, the apparent changes have been put in place to maintain the basic ones, you see. And often tell people racism is going out of style, not because the white man is better, but because he has a better weapon for maintaining his racial position. You see, the racism is being given up, not because necessarily because we are so militant, that's a part of it, I'm not discrediting our efforts, but also because there's a recognition that overt racism is no longer necessary to maintain control of our people. As a matter of fact, it's non-racism, apparent non-racism, that is the best way of maintaining racist control. Thank you. Now, uh, the thing you have to look at then is the power relationship. Has the power relationship between African people and Europeans changed? You see? This is the issue you must look at. Has it changed, you see? Are we, and I'd like to put it in this question, are we as Africans in any better position to defend our children and ourselves against enslavement today than our forefathers were 400 years ago? This is what you have to look at. If the Europeans today decided that they would come right here in this room and take us right into slavery, into concentration camps, or decide to remove us, can we defend ourselves? Can we defend our children? What black nation can come to our defense? Is there any African nation, another nation, that can stand up and defend our rights? That has not changed, ladies and gentlemen. Despite all the African governments and all of the so-called independent movements and all the governors and mayors and all of this other stuff, we have elected the old power game is the same. Nothing has moved. The ability to protect yourself is still vulnerable. The Europeans have meetings at Helsinki, right? And they have meetings at this. And of course, we're never told, of course, that you have the superficial meeting and then you have the secret ones that you don't hear about. And these are the ones, you know, so that you get a lot of publicity about the surface stuff. But what, is, what are the Europeans discussing? In those in those chambers that we that don't, that uh, doesn't get out to us, I could see. Often you may wonder if Andropov 
and Reagan are just playing games with the world. You know, let's play warlike, and this way we can whip up our people to do anything we want them to do. Right? The Russians feel threatened, and you can get the Russians to do what, you know, and you can get them in armies and droves. If you whip up a fear about the United States, people will sacrifice money, time, lives, limbs, and everything to the cause. Fall in line. The same thing in this country. So what do we do? Let's just keep up noise, and this way we control. What about one day, Mandropoff and Reagan meet, and say, so, you know, we're tired of these Africans. Why do we have to even, we, we're not giving them anything anyway. So why should we even, be, why should we, we even put up with them? What do we need them for? You know, back, uh, what, in the 70s, there was a discussion of triage, right? Light boat ethics. The whole issue of, of uh, the debate is uh, the concern whether we should just let some nations completely fade away and die based on the idea that uh, a lifeboat only has so much space for so many people. And if you have a bunch of people floating around in the water, you have to make a decision who you're going to let in the boat and who's going to have to stay out and drown. And if you look at Earth as a lifeboat, that can only contain so much life and can only support so many people, particularly if you're looking at it on the level of a style of life, where some people on this boat want to maintain a very high style of life and don't want to give it up, so therefore share with other people, this becomes, and maybe we should let these nations just fade away and die and forget about it. And it's based on the issue of who can contribute to our progress or not. And naturally, they look around at our nations and begin to wonder, why, why should we carry these people along? And so, Antropos and Reagan can meet and say, well, let's get rid of these people. Why should we keep them? Of course, we know that the neutron bomb the was developed for the third world. Even though they try to deceive you and try to say, oh, we're developing this bomb because the Russians have more tanks than us in Eastern Europe. And uh, this way we can get over their tank superiority, you know. But of course, when you read the account of the guy who developed the neutron bomb, it was obvious that the neutron bomb was developed for the third world, to be used against the third world, so-called. Most beautifully, over the Arab countries, because it's a season doing what? Blowing the Arabs away and leaving the oil well standing. Leaving the infrastructure, the fuel infrastructure, there while ridding the land of its people. Why couldn't that be, of course, applied to the rest of the African continent? This is the kind of world, you see, that our children and the kind of possibilities that our children must face. And this is, these are the kinds of possibilities that they must be prepared to handle. And this is why the education of our children, you see, can't even be the same education. Because we're not preparing for the same thing these other people are preparing for. And this is the reason why education in the black community should be very deadly, deadly serious at this point, you see. So this constancy in the European, despite all of the appearances, is going to try to maintain power. And he's going to change the appearances to maintain that power. When I speak before many black college audiences, I tell them up front that of course you are here to become the black face that's going to be put on white power.
that black educated elite, that's its major function, is to confuse the black masses and to deceive these masses into thinking that we actually are sharing in the power and that we actually have some real stake in the society. The same way we, of course, we have in the neo-colonial tradition to put in front of the people neo-colonialist leaders whose economies and whose lifelines are still controlled by Europeans to deceive the African masses into thinking that independence actually exists. So when there is unrest, they will attack the puppets. And yet the European will continue to extract the wealth from the countries. Why does he get out of Africa? Then he gets out of Africa because it becomes cheaper to put these puppets up in front of the people than it does for him to stay there with a whole set of troops. So his apparent appears to be to get better. He's just another part of the game. These Europeans have found, for instance, that they could... Uh, we hear some of our countries say, well, you know, uh, in order to go into business, the, the national... Uh, the country itself has to own at least 50% or 51% of whatever industry comes into it. And that sounds very nice and sweet, doesn't it? So we can go into many of our African countries, other countries, the third world countries, and you can say, well, uh, the government owns part of this. But it's a charade. What does it mean to own it? Basically it means just to own the trouble that's going to come out of it. How's it happen? The European has found that he can make as much money or more money by owning 25% of a company than he could by owning the whole thing. Because he's going to supply quite often the middle, the so-called management. You can own it, but I'm going to run it. And he pays his managers tremendous salary, so he still robs the country, even though it's nominally under your control. Not only does he do that, he still sells the parts and the industrial parts and technology that must go into that company. And he will sell those parts and that technology at exorbitant prices and will deliver them when he feels like it, if he feels like it or not. Or he can keep the company that you own a majority in technologically behind other countries as such. So then when your workers go on strike and so forth, they strike against the government or strike against the apparent owners of the industry and that that government fights and beats those strikers down and do so forth and the Europeans still there sucks the money out. So the apparent lack of racism, ladies and gentlemen, see, and it, it's this kind of intelligence that a black that a black education must get us into. So that we can look beyond appearances. We look at Ghana today almost at the point of almost total destabilization. And yet, if you read the New York Times a few weeks back, you hear about these chocolate freaks, right? The chocolate addicts now, people who just so love chocolate so much, that's the new end thing now, you know, getting hung up on chocolates. And you have to, I mean, they just, oh, they're having fits with chocolate. You go down to the uh, Bloomingdale's chocolate sale for 25, 20, 20, more than $20 a pound. Very expensive. Nestle, of course, owns 60% of the whole chocolate output, cocoa beans and all that kind of stuff. And yet, when you look at a major supplier of cocoa beans, Ghana, you see a people who have to work one full day to buy one egg. One egg, ladies and gentlemen.
And, and so when I look at hot chocolate, man, I can't feel good, you know. What's going on here? Independence? Where is it? It has not yet come into being. The black people, liberation has not yet come into being, ladies and gentlemen. But we have to watch it because a lot of us are deceived by appearances. The other constancy that's going to maintain itself despite appearances will be dependency. Maintaining our people in a dependent state. And of course, that's one of the reasons why we have to watch integrationism and assimilationism to a very great extent. Because quite often, instead of strengthening us, it can weaken us. Quite often, nothing has changed, so we get more jobs, so we, so we make a little better income and so forth. But who still owns the company? Who still owns the means of production? Who still has the military power? Who is determining the international and national policy of the world? This is the issue that we have to focus upon. And quite often we can become so dependent and so comfortable with our being so-called accepted and with our so-called equality until we don't prepare for the possibility that things may change drastically. I often must warn people that there are two words, integration and disintegration. You see, our leaders have deceived us into thinking that once we get these people to love us and we start holding hands with them and sleeping with them and marrying them and, you know, they, everything, everything's going to be all right as if this cannot be what? Reversed. As if this cannot change. As a matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen, we're going through the second reconstruction now, aren't we? Yeah, this is the second reconstruction. There's nothing new about what we're going through basically at this point. We've had black males before. We've had people, black super were governors. We've had uh, black legislators before. In fact, we don't have quite as many in some instances that we had before. We had black corporate owners before. We had blacks running back and forth to Washington and doing big deals before. This is nothing new. We voted before in this country. And that was betrayed. And it took us over 100 years to get back, basically, to the same spot we were in the 1870s. And we recently back at that point now. What? Okay, brothers and sisters. Yeah, we're playing the first part of Amos Wilson. Now, if you would like to hear the rest of that presentation, Write up something on the chat room and let me know, yeah? It's all about that interaction. Otherwise, I'll just give you what I feel to give you right now, yeah? So, without the interaction, that's what you're going to get. But if you want more, let me know.